Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations Podcast. My guest today is Catherine Eben, who is author of Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom. We will discuss her book. Catherine is a Fortune Magazine contributor and has also written for Vanity Fair, Self, and The Nation. She is the author of Dangerous Doses, a true story of cops, counterfeiters, and the contamination of America's drug supply. She formerly worked as a staff writer for the New York Times and the New York Observer. Educated at Brown University in Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar, she lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two daughters. Catherine, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with something really easy. What do we mean when we say generic drugs? Is there a generally accepted definition for that? Yes. Um, a generic drug is a version of a brand name drug that is, um, in theory, bioequivalent, which means that the drug uh, reaches this, uh, a similar level of absorption in the blood as the brand name drug uses the same active ingredient, the same molecule, um, and is basically formulated with the same route of administration. So whether that's a tablet, uh, an injectable, it's the sort of similarly formulated, and it needs to be approved by uh, our main regulators, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. How does that definition come about in the sense of to what degree does a drug need to be similar to the name brand drug in order to be considered its bioequivalent? Does it have to be 90% similar to the name brand drug or 10% similar? Is is it up to the FDA, and does it vary by drug? Um, well, it is up to the FDA in that they have set a standard that a generic that that is going to be approved has to meet. So it is 20, 20% below or 25% above the uh, absorption into the blood as the brand name drug. So, in fact, it's, it's a sizable range. Um, and some people feel that that range is too wide, but it, it's a recognition by the FDA that a generic drug is not going to be identical to a brand name product. So that they've put forward what is an acceptable standard for a generic drug to meet. And so it varies with the drug. It's not always the same or is it just the range is always the same? Um, well, it has to fall within that range in order to be deemed bioequivalent and in order to get approval. I mean, it might be, you know, 10% below, 15% above, but the range, if it's outside of that range, it will not get approved by the FDA. You spent the better part of 10 years, if I recall correctly, and traveled far and wide mm -hmm. to research this book. Tell us, in a nutshell, what you discovered. Well, my research into this whole issue started with um, being contacted by a radio show host who runs a show called The People's Pharmacy, Joe Graydon. And he said, you know, patients were contacting his program complaining about the side effects of generic drugs uh, and that they were having trouble with the medicine he suggested I investigate. Um, after 10 years, basically what I found was endemic fraud in the manufacturing plants overseas that make the majority of our generic drugs. So these are plants in India and in China where there is rampant falsification of the data that those plants or those companies submit to the FDA in order to get approval for their drugs. In addition to that, there seems to be a disregard for the information from the regulators so that 
even though there have been whistleblowers and ample data has come forward, the situation has not improved. Is that right? Well, the problem is that a number of these overseas companies have figured out how to game the FDA's inspection system. Uh, part of the problem is the FDA, uh, you know, 7,000 miles away, um, is reviewing data submitted by the company. And the data is the result of, you know, drawn from manufacturing processes and limited clinical trials. So they're reviewing the data. Some of that data is falsified. But they also do what are called pre-approval inspections to make sure that a plant can actually make the drug it says it, it's going to make. Uh, but the FDA is announcing those inspections weeks and months in advance, uh, which allows the companies to stage the inspections. They will bring in data fabrication teams that will shred and falsify documents. Um, and so the problem is they have figured out how to get around the FDA's review system um, and, and that there are not sufficient consequences for uh, falsifying data. One of the first questions that comes to mind when I hear about this situation is, well, doesn't the FDA have laboratories where they can take these drugs and test them in addition to and separate from any visits to the overseas plants? Can't they just take the batches of the drugs at random once they arrive stateside for use by Americans and test them to see what is in the drugs? So what, what you're describing is something called surveillance testing, which makes a lot of sense, right? You know, don't take their word for it. Actually see uh, whether the drug works as the company says it works. Uh, the FDA does not do that on a routine basis. Um, it just doesn't happen. And that's why the data is so important. So, you know, the, the whole idea behind what are called good manufacturing practices is, it's impossible to test a million pills, right? You can't do that. You can't test every pill from a batch. But what you can do is you can document minute to minute the manufacturing processes by which the drugs are made. So if there's an issue, you can go back and investigate. You know where to look. And that's the data, that minute to minute data that in many cases these companies are fabricating. Uh, and, and in many instances, they know there won't be surveillance testing. So they are making false claims to the FDA about what is going on in their manufacturing plants. Uh, you know, and there, there are whistleblowers who do contact the FDA, but it doesn't happen all the time. So a lot of times the FDA doesn't actually know whether the drugs are working effectively or not. What is the depth and breadth of this? What are we talking about in terms of the number of drugs, individual drugs, and the overall quantities? So, first of all, um, the U.S. drug supply is 90% generic. It's a huge number. It's about a $103 billion industry. Uh, or, uh, excuse me, $103 billion market in the U.S. And the majority of those drugs are made overseas. So, for example, 40% alone of all our generic drugs are coming from India. Now, as to the prevalence of falsification, uh, in the book I follow a young FDA investigator named Peter Baker. Um, over the course of five years, he inspected 86 drug plants in India and China, and he found some element of data fabrication or data manipulation in four-fifths of those plants. So that really gives you a sense of how widespread this problem is. Now, spoiler alert for those who haven't read the book, the situation does not have a happy ending vis-a-vis -vis Peter Baker in terms of, well, the situation is still going on and 
Peter Baker is no longer one of the inspectors. Is that correct? Yes. He left the agency in uh, March of 2019. Uh, he was, you know, some people described him to me as the Pablo Picasso of foreign drug inspections. I mean, he was that good. Uh, but instead of promoting him and allowing him to train other investigators on how to do what he did, um, they really sidelined him at the FDA, uh, and he left the agency in March. Here we are all this time later, and we're worse off than we were because now he's not even part of that group of people who is – inspecting the plants and perhaps the best one at doing this, right? He had some sort of an uncanny way of mm -hmm. finding these falsification uh, records. And, mm -hmm. and it wasn't just that the drugs weren't doing what they were supposed to do, that they weren't bioequivalent. It was much worse than that, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean... Basically, as the book documents, you know, as a result of these fabrications, um, U.S. consumers have gotten drugs that have metallic or glass particulate matter in them that are not being made in sterile facilities. These are facilities where literally the bathrooms may lack drainage piping. They may, there may be bird infestations. Um, or insect and lizard infestations. Um, uh, you know, some of these plants are even, even falsifying their own sterility data showing that the plants are sterile. So there are just, you know, tremendous problems at these plants and some FDA investigators are very good at sort of getting underneath the sort of stage-managed surface of the investigations, and some of them really aren't. So the discovery of what's going on is very uneven from the FDA. And some of the ingredients in these drugs have also been toxic beyond metallic and glass matter. Is that right? That's right, and there's a situation right now um, where there has been a very widespread recall of blood pressure medications that contains active ingredients made, some of them made in China, some of them made in India, and uh, the active ingredient was found to contain a carcinogen uh, that is actually used in the production of liquid rocket fuel. Uh, so, you know, American patients have been taking those drugs day in and day out. Valsartan, Losartan, and Irbisartan. Um, and there have been about, I think, four different impurities that have been identified. Um, some of that has come from the reuse of solvents in manufacturing. You know, and part of the problem is you've got, you know, low-cost manufacturing where they are uh, sort of short-circuiting the appropriate manufacturing steps um, they may be reusing solvents, using lower quality ingredients as opposed to higher quality ingredients, and the result is toxic impurities in the drugs. Let's just say this one more time so it can sink in for all of us who didn't spend 10 years researching this. <laughs> there is a recall of blood pressure medication, which is something likely used by many people, daily, if I heard you correctly, mm -hmm. that has an ingredient used in rocket fuel? Right. Well, what happens is, um, you know, all drugs are essentially toxic, but it's through the manufacturing process that you remove impurities until what you have is a drug that can cure instead of kill. But if you uh, short-circuit those manufacturing steps or you substitute or use less pure ingredients, the end result may be toxic instead of curative. And that is the case with this blood pressure medication. Well, that makes sense. Sort of too much of something that is benign can poison you. Similar situation here. If you take 
the raw ingredient and you process it properly, it can be good for you. Mm-hmm. But if you don't because you're using substandard or too old or too reused ingredients in the process, then you end up with something that is making people get cancer? That's essentially right, yes. And how many millions of prescriptions or millions of people are we talking about? Oh, I mean, this is, I don't know the exact number, but absolutely millions of Americans have been taking uh, the, what are called ARBs, Valsartan, Losartan, Irbisartan. These are, uh, you know, very commonly used blood pressure medications. There's also been a situation with the drugs that you take to prevent rejection when you have a foreign organ transplant. Would you tell us about that? Yeah. So in the book, I follow two cardiologists from the Cleveland Clinic, uh, and they began to realize that a number of their patients who had been stabilized either on brand name cardiac drugs or on higher quality generic cardiac drugs became unstable once they were switched to low quality generics. Um, The Cleveland Clinic decided that it was no longer going to distribute to its patients an immunosuppressant uh, called tacrolimus uh, that was made by an Indian generic company called Dr. Reddy's. They were concerned about Dr. Reddy's and all the recalls um, but what these cardiologists found is that heart trans, their heart transplant patients who, uh, once they left the hospital, if they went to, say, a CVS pharmacy and were dispensed this uh, immunosuppressant, which transplant patients have to take every single day, um, they were showing up in the emergency room with symptoms of organ rejection. And, in fact, one of the, one of the patients I write about in the book died. Um, was switched to this immunosuppressant and uh, was in organ rejection when she went back to the hospital. And the question in our listeners' minds right around now is, (laughs) how is it possible? We live in the United States. This is one of the most advanced countries in terms of medical advances. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. certainly a wealthy country by many measures. How is it possible that this is happening? You know, there's no single answer to that question. I mean, basically what I found is uh, sort of a cascading series of issues. Uh, we have no meaningful price regulation of drugs in this country, which is a huge issue right now. Um Because of that, people can't afford brand-name drugs, so we have been forced into the arms of these low-cost providers uh, in India and China. There is tremendous political pressure on the FDA to approve low-cost generics uh, and to not withdraw them from the marketplace, right? I mean, the, the prevailing attitude is more cheap drugs, not less. So even when their own investigators are out in the field and find tremendous problems in these manufacturing plants, my investigation found that FDA officials back in Maryland are actually downgrading the recommended sanctions uh, that that their investigators believe are warranted. Uh, And one of the cases is from this Chinese manufacturing plant, Zhejiang Huahai probably pronounced that wrong. Apologies. Um, An FDA investigator went in there and found out, wait a second, this manufacturing plant is uh, not testing the impurity peaks in its own drugs. So they test them uh, on what are called HPLC machines, and the results are in in a test called a chromatogram where you can see impurity spikes in the drugs. Uh, and and under good manufacturing practices, manufacturing plants are required to investigate abnormalities in their own products. So the FDA investigator in 2017 went in and said, well, wait a second, they're, 
there are these impurity spikes and they're not looking into what the problem is. They're just retesting the drugs until they pass, which suggests data manipulation. He recommended what's called official action indicated. So that is sort of the strictest regulatory sanction against a plant. The FDA, um, instead of doing that, downgraded his finding to voluntary action indicated, meaning, okay, the plant doesn't have to make emergency changes. One year later, that plant is in the middle of a worldwide regulatory scandal because of toxic impurities in its blood pressure medications. So, I mean, that is an example, a really crystal clear example of how this happens. What about the companies that developed the original drugs? Why don't they go and test these generic drugs and say, hey, everybody, this stuff is no good. You should buy our product because (laughs) it's safe and clean. Don't they stand to make a pile of money if they do that? Well, you know, the problem is, is that the market is really everything tilts towards the generic. You know, once once a patent expires or a generic company successfully challenges a patent and generic companies come in, the price plunges. Right. So our, our whole apparatus from the drugstore chains and the insurance companies gets behind the generic, right? So even if you, even if your doctor wrote do not substitute on the prescription and and you went and filled a prescription and said, my doctor says I have to have the brand name, your insurance company is not going to cover that if a generic is available. So, you know, in recognition of that, what the brand companies have done is, hey, let's buy a generic company. Let's stay in the game after our patent expires. You know, so the distinctions between brand companies and generics are not what they once were. Um, you know, a number of the brand companies do have generic subsidiaries. So the lines have gotten blurry. Mm-hmm. And that goes to one of the issues that you were mentioning earlier, that the vast majority of the drugs in the United States is coming from overseas, right? What was it, 90% of the generics is from overseas? Well, no, it's 90% of our drug supply is generic, and the majority of those drugs are coming from overseas, 40% alone from India. And another large percentage from China. Is China the next in line after India in terms of percentage? You know, I I am not sure. It could be Canada. I'm not exactly sure. But but 80%, this is an interesting statistic, 80% of the active ingredient in all of our drugs, brand or generic, is coming from overseas, the majority of those from China and India. Um, so, you know, basically, I mean, as one um drug importer put it to me, without these overseas drug products, not a single drug in this country could be made. We just can't do it. Everything, we are dependent on Indian uh, and Chinese drug products. Okay, I'm still trying processing, processing. (laughs) So when you say we can't do it, does that mean that the pharmaceutical companies that used to make these products have shut down their manufacturing plants in the United States? Is this why we can't do it? In many cases, yes. Literally, we no longer have the capacity. Uh, You know, antibiotics is a big part of uh, that story, for example. I mean, we used to be the lead uh, antibiotic manufacturers in the world. And, you know, within the last, I don't know if it's 15 years, really the last antibiotic plant uh, in the U.S. shut down. Um, there may be, a you know, just a fraction of the manufacturing. But basically what it means for consumers is if you go to a pharmacy and you fill an antibiotic prescription for your kid who has an ear infection, it's almost guaranteed that that drug is coming from overseas. What isn't 
coming from overseas? You said most everything is coming from overseas. Is there a category of drugs that is not being affected by this? Is there a brand, a company that has not joined this bandwagon? What are the exceptions? Well, you know, it's not really an exception, as I understand it, by category of drug. I mean, it's that we do still retain some manufacturing in the U.S. But, for example, there's a company called Civica RX, um, which opened up this year uh, a drug venue. It's a nonprofit drug manufacturer that is aiming to do manufacturing in the U.S., uh, on a nonprofit basis to try to make all these drugs that have been in short supply. Uh, that company has gotten a ton of press because it is unusual what they're doing. I mean, that just goes to show you, you know. Um, so you have Western companies, um, even Western brand name companies that have bought up factories in India and China um, in order to lower costs. Then you have Indian and Chinese companies that are looking to get into our market and so are importing drugs into the U.S. So basically, I mean, from sort of two directions, there's been this huge offshoring of our production capacity for pharmaceuticals. Why is it that we all, until recently, believed that generics were the same as the name brand version of the product? How did we get to the place where reality is so divorced from fiction? You know, I think part of the way we got there is the FDA telling us that. The FDA has said over and over again, there is no difference, right? The brand and the generic are interchangeable, Generics are interchangeable with one another. And because of that reassurance, I mean, even savvy consumers who go to a pharmacy and fill a prescription rarely look at who the manufacturer is, right? I mean, do you check? Probably not. So, you know, we're switched all the time. We may be, if you take a maintenance medication, one prescription might be one company, another might be a different company. Um, you know, and a lot of consumers don't realize that, hey, you know, I filled that prescription. It was a new manufacturer, and now I feel funny. I feel different. So we don't pay attention because we've been reassured. You know, and part of the reason we've been reassured is because the FDA has no plan B for our drug supply. You know, if, if we don't have these low-cost generics, what are we going to do? Now, tell us about the huge divide that is behind this pressure that you were talking about that the FDA is under and the part of the reason that we are where we are now, which is the price of these drugs, the difference in price between the name brand drug and the supposedly bioequivalent generic. What order of magnitude are we talking about in terms of the price difference? Well, you know, for any given drug and any given consumer, depending on your insurance, you know, I mean, I will give you an example from my own life, which is that to refill a generic is usually for me about $10 at my pharmacy and with my insurance. Um, but I do take a maintenance medication, uh, which is a sensitive time-release drug. Because of that, I've chosen, because uh, I'm concerned about it, to stay on the brand, and that is costing me almost $300 a month out of pocket. So that is, you know, I mean, it's just a giant difference. And, you know, most people can't afford that, and frankly, I, I can't really afford it myself. Uh, but I've done that because I'm concerned enough about the medication, uh, and I've tried the generic, and I felt different. So, for example, you talked about antibiotics earlier and mentioned that nearly all of the antibiotics that we have in the United States now are imported. 
and they've gotten so cheap that in some cases when you have a prescription, the pharmacy, many of the chain pharmacies, will give it to you for free. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I've never even actually heard heard that. I have seen, unless I'm totally wrong, that in some cases, I think if you're a first-time customer or for some yeah. prescriptions, if you're, I don't know if you have to fulfill another prescription, if you come in with the antibiotic and something else, I'm not sure what the requirements are, but I know that I've seen the promotions basically that they, the prescription is filled without any cost. Maybe it has to do with your insurer? I mean, that's possible. It's really very difficult to generalize because, you know, insurance differs and pharmacy chains differ and formularies differ. So, you know, every patient is going to be having a somewhat different experience. A lot of patients, depending on employer insurance, are sort of driven into mail order pharmacies. Um, and are never interacting with a pharmacist in an actual pharmacy. You know, they're getting a three-month supply uh, of their drug from a mail-order pharmacy. So it's entirely different from, you know, person to person. Now, where do vaccines and supplements such as uh, – well, any kind of vaccine, really, that you take, whether it's in the United States for childhood vaccines or flu vaccines or if you're traveling vaccines, things like antimalarials or I suppose eventually there will be an Ebola vaccine that will be available. Mm-hmm. Where do these things fall in terms of the discussion that we're having? Are they also being made into generics and suffer from these same issues? So, you know, first of all, vaccines, any injectable drug has to be made under regulations, has to be made in a sterile manufacturing plant. And the um, regulations around that are very, very strict. Um, But, you know, those plants, and many of them are overseas, do, you know, have, there have been the same fabrication of data in those plants. Um, Now, you know, ideally, the FDA is sending its most experienced investigators into those plants. They will send microbiologists, you know, and people who are expert at microbiological contamination into those manufacturing plants. So, you know, any injectable drug is going to be subject to serious scrutiny. Uh, On the other hand, there are, you know, the same issues pertain to those plants, and I describe some of them in my book. What about nutritional supplements? Things are generally much more benign, certainly have a much less likelihood of the harm that not getting the right medication might have in a case of a prescription drug, things like vitamins and nutritional supplements. They are also regulated by the FDA. Are they under the same category of the generic drugs in terms of falsification and toxic ingredients? You know, I I did not get into the question of supplements in my book, but as a general matter, uh, supplements are minimally regulated when compared to prescription drugs. Um, You know, and I do think that some of them are made in uh, manufacturing plants where FDA inspectors have really never set foot. So, you know, I am skeptical about the quality of supplements as the regulation is uh, less than for prescriptions. If buyer beware is the case in the generic drug industry, just... Forget about it if we're talking about (laughs) anything else. Well, you know, what's crazy about this is that the the whole idea of a regulated drug supply is that it's not buyer beware, right? I mean, if you buy over the Internet, if you buy drugs over the Internet, it's definitely buyer beware. But the whole idea of a regulated drug supply is that consumers can be guaranteed that you know, every dose is identical, the quality is the same, 
But that is really what my book is looking at skeptically, because I'm really exposing stuff that is going on in these manufacturing plants and pulling back the curtain, you know, where the FDA is just kind of outgunned and cannot be a global policeman of these manufacturing plants. And more than that, if I understood the gist of it correctly, not only do they not have the resources, but they don't have the desire. They are downgrading the reports mm-hmm. from their own inspectors, yes. and they have cornered their best inspector, Peter Baker, into a position where he was so frustrated that he stepped down. Mm-hmm. Is there yeah. is there any kind of a requirement for a drug manufacturer to provide information to the consumer. What I'm thinking, for example, is when you go to the grocery store and you look at a food item, it is, if I understand correctly, they're required to tell you the country of origin, the country of manufacture. If it's a fruit, it should say where it was grown. If it's a food product of another kind, say something like cookies or nuts, they're required to tell you where they came from. Is there anything like that when it comes to your prescription drugs? Are they required to tell you on the bottle or anywhere in the labeling, this product was made in X plant on X date, etc.? Well, you know what? There isn't. And a lot of people think there needs to be. Um, so, you know, as you point out, you'll get more information on a supermarket product or even on, on the shirt you have on today. It will tell you where it was manufactured. So a lot of people think we need um, uh, origin, you know, manufacturing origin labeling uh, on pharmaceuticals. And that would include where the active ingredient was made and where the finished dose was made. So, for example, you know, you take a drug, maybe the active ingredient was made in China, and then the uh, a, a drug plant in India formulated the finished dose. And none of that is available to the consumer. Consumers don't know any of that. And the question is, why? Why shouldn't they? And it's not just the consumers, because in addition to the FDA, we, the general public, also have other medical professionals that are part of this process. <clears throat> Excuse me. In other words, you don't just get a prescription out of thin air. You go through a process with your physician or physicians, and that is how you come about your prescription medication. There are medical associations. There's all of these layers, including the person that you were talking about, the People's Pharmacy, which are one of the first ones that drew attention to these issues. Mm -hmm. And apparently they don't have access to this information either. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, that's right. And so, I, you know, I write about one physician, uh, Dr. Harry Lever, who had to become like Sherlock Holmes when it came to where these drugs were being made for his patients. You know, he spent countless hours trying to figure out why his patients were having the reactions that they were having, where the drugs were made, trying to get information from the FDA, trying to get his patients switched from one manufacturer to another. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's, it's crazy that consumers should have to be, you know, investigative journalists, essentially, to figure out where their drugs are being made. Now, this started, sort of, certainly one of the icebergs in this generic drug situation was a company from India who, out of nowhere, sort of, came into the limelight with the first generic generic version of, was it Lipitor? Uh, yes, that's right. Tell us about Rambaxi, please. I, I don't know if I'm saying the name correctly. Yes, Rambaxi. So um, the book uh, tells the story of a young um, uh, engineer 
who was working for Bristol-Myers Squibb. His name was Dinesh Tucker, and he was recruited to go to work for India's largest drug company, Rambaxi. Um, and, you know, for him, he viewed it as a homecoming, returning to his native India uh, and taking up this post. Uh, but shortly after he arrived, the head of research and development for the company, who was also newly arrived, said he was worried about the integrity of the data that the company was submitting to regulators. And he wanted Dinesh to investigate, basically, was this data accurate uh, that was being submitted? And Dinesh and his team did an investigation and really uncovered Rambaxi's secret, which is that they were falsifying and in some cases entirely inventing data for drugs that they were um, selling in markets around the world. So, you know, anytime you get permission to sell a drug, you have to apply to a country's regulator. You submit data showing the drugs are bioequivalent. Rambaxi just made all that up. And uh, Dinesh put together an explosive report, which got shown to the company's board of directors. Uh, they decided to bury the information. Uh, he was forced out of the company, and he became a whistleblower at the FDA. And the book really chronicles his story and the investigation of that company, which took place over eight years. Eventually... He received a nice chunk of money, right? Was it $48 million? That is correct. So as a whistleblower under what are called key TAM provisions, whistleblowers get a percentage of the government's recovery. Um, so ultimately, Rambaxi pleaded guilty to seven felonies related to data fabrication and had to pay a, um, a big settlement with the government, and, and Dinesh's percentage of that was $48 million. And yet, he didn't just sit back and enjoy the fruits of labor and all of the risks he took, because he also took personal risks, right? It was a, it was a difficult situation that he was in when he blew the whistle. Oh, I mean, he suffered incredibly in the course of this investigation, which he had to keep secret from his family. Uh, he ultimately broke up with his wife. Uh, his family was torn apart. Um, he, you know, and he also watched over the years as almost inexplicably as Rambaxi was under investigation for just being saturated with fraud. The FDA approved one drug after another by the company, including the biggest generic drug launch in history, uh, generic Lipitor. Now, they knew, and by they I mean the regulators at the FDA, that this company had some pretty serious problems. Even at that early stage, they had enough information about what was going on and enough reports from their inspectors to have said no to this application, right? Absolutely. Yes, they, they, they could have. Um, you know, the problem was, I think, as the FDA saw it, they were under tremendous pressure to approve a generic Lipitor. Uh, Rambaxi had gotten what's called first file approval. So it had been the first generic company to submit its application, uh, and the FDA ended up granting them approval one year after the Rambaxi launched generic Lipitor. It had to recall millions of the pills um, because it turned out they had uh, glass contaminants in them. Then they, after all of the goings-on, hoodwinked, is that a good word? A mm -hmm. Japanese company into buying them out? That's right. The CEO uh, of Rambaxi, Malvinder Singh, who was the grandson of the company's founder, um, he and his brother sold their shares, which were ultimately worth about $2 billion to this Japanese company, Daiichi Sankyo, 
and suppressed the fact that the company was under this massive criminal investigation for data fraud. Um, <laughs> so Daiichi Sankyo found itself on the hook for a $500 million penalty, and they went, ended up buying this sort of lemon of a company that was saturated with fraud. And this was proven out because they went to, was it uh, the court in Singapore, International Court? That's right. So ultimately, Daiichi Sankyo takes uh, Malvinder Singh, who was the Rambaxi CEO, to an arbitration court in Singapore. And remarkably, they introduce um, Tsutomo Une, is the chair, was the chairman of the Daiichi Sankyo company who oversaw this purchase, they introduced his uh, diary that he kept as evidence in which he, you know, expresses puzzlement at why the FDA would be so hard on Rambaxi if the company was actually innocent of all these problems, as Malvinder Singh had claimed. Uh, and it's just a sort of extraordinary uh, nightmare of due diligence. Uh, you know, I mean, it's sort of like your worst corporate nightmare. But, you know, it's interesting because it's really there's there's this huge question about culture in the middle of all of this. And that's what I heard a lot as I was reporting. You know, people talked about the culture of companies and the culture of manufacturing in different countries. Uh, you know, and one question, you know, so the Japanese have a very. Um, very sort of tight regulatory culture, quality is very important, whereas, you know, the um, Indian companies are really prioritizing sort of profit at any, you know, at any cost. Um, uh, and so this was a real culture clash between this Indian company and a Japanese company, and ultimately the Japanese really lost their shirts in this deal. So let me stop at this moment and ask a question that I think perhaps our listeners have been thinking since we started. Mm -hmm. Is this a fiction story? Is this a fictionalized story? Or is, are we talking nonfiction here? Oh, good Lord. This is absolutely nonfiction. It is a rigorous investigative account. These stories that I relate in the book are drawn from internal documents. So I obtained 20,000 internal FDA documents in the course of my investigation, uh, which include internal emails. Uh, I interviewed over 240 people. Uh, you know, I'm telling the story of real people who I sort of follow throughout this story. Um, so the book is written as narrative nonfiction. You know, and people have said, well, it, it reads like Stephen King. It reads like Michael Crichton. Uh, but it's all true. It's all true, and it's got 40 pages of endnotes on it. So, yes, 100% true story. 482 pages long and with extensive endnotes. In addition to that, you name names. Oh, Yes. You name the names of the FDA people who were in charge, the investigators, the inspectors. Sometimes you have to resort to pressure to get information, or were the documents all easy to come by? Uh, let me just say, none of this was easy to come by, you know. Um, so in investigative journalism, you expect that. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, this was a reporting effort that took me almost 10 years. Um, you know, it's a global investigation. I reported on four continents. Many of the people I sp ultimately who helped and cooperated were very reluctant to begin with. Um, so, you know, this was very, very heavy sledding as far as an effort to get information. How did you manage 10 years of dedication to this project from a making a living perspective? Mm -hmm. What was your source of funding? If somebody out there is thinking that you have a hidden agenda, 
uh, where were you coming from from that perspective? Well, um, first of all, let me just say that it is pretty much a rite of passage doing this complex and difficult a book to go broke. And indeed, I did go broke. But um, I am very careful in disclosing all the funding for the book. Um, and add that's on my website and in the book itself. Um, I got an advance from my publisher, which is a HarperCollins. And then I got grants from um, various nonprofit organizations. So the Carnegie Corporation, the Sloan Foundation, um, and two other uh, foundations, none of which had a stake in the outcome of this. So this is basically journalism grants that supported this, uh, and there was no other source of funding for it. In addition to what the inspectors found out about mm -hmm. plants that were producing drugs to be imported into the United States, some mm -hmm. of them, uh, Peter Baker, if I recall correctly in particular, he shared information about everything that he found in the plants, some of which was of interest to other countries. Is that right? Um, well, so what, what Peter Baker did and what I drew on very heavily is that um, when FDA investigators go into plants, they write a series of reports. So one is what's called an establishment inspection report that is kind of like a narrative of the investigation. We went here, we saw this, we met with these people, and those can be very long and very detailed. Um, and then if there are findings or problems in those plants, they write what are called 483s. Those are uh, form 483s, but they're basically an account of the problems found in the plant. Uh, and then in the most problematic inspections, those can result in what are called warning letters. So those documents really give can help to give a very detailed account of what investigators find inside these plants. And in addition to the findings for the U.S. plants, part of what the inspectors discovered was that oftentimes the drugs were made at the best quality, quote-unquote, for the U.S. market because the FDA was considered to be the most demanding, whereas other agencies were not quite as strict. Is that right? Well, so the issue here that I think you're getting at is called dual track production. And this was another one of uh, the things I uncovered, which is that in the generic drug industry, it is unfortunately and sadly very common for companies to make different levels of quality for different markets. So they will send their best drugs um, made under the stricter set of conditions to more regulated markets. So that would be the U.S. and Europe. And the lowest quality of drugs, the drugs that probably should have gone in the trash bin but they didn't reject the batches, will be sent to the markets where there is much weaker regulation. So certain African countries, um, certain uh, Asian countries, uh, Latin American countries. Um, and some of those markets, the shorthand for those markets is rest of world. And it's terrible because those patients who have the same needs as us are getting much lower quality drugs. Uh, so, you know, what the, the manufacturing standard that boils down to is essentially whatever you can get away with. And so it's not just the drugs that are coming to the United States that have these problems. Europe and the rest of the world is seeing these same issues with generics. Is, is that, am I understanding that correctly? You're understanding that correctly, but there are countries where the generics are much worse. So, you know, I, I reported on cases in Ghana, uh, Ghana and Uganda where doctors are having to double and triple doses in order to try to get a therapeutic effect. And in fact, you know, the consequences of that are really quite serious because um, those, those very substandard drugs can help promote drug resistance so that you have, you know, uh, 
strains of infectious disease that are become resistant even to good drugs if if patients are initially underdosed with substandard drugs. And that would be similar to the situation that they have it, that they've had for many years, but I, I presume it's gotten worse. The resistant, what is it, malaria resistant? Yeah. I'm yeah. struggling to find the wording here. The bacteria or the strains of malaria that are resistant to drugs, that there is no drug that can treat them. Right. So you've got malaria, tuberculosis, bacterial infections. Um, you know, you have hospital-acquired infections, which can't be adequately treated. So it's a very, you know, it's a perilous situation for all of us. In other words, you know, it's not like, okay, someone in Africa is getting underdosed with a substandard generic, but we don't have to worry about it. We do have to worry about it. It's our problem, too. What do we who are reading the book, who are listening to this conversation, what can we as consumers do? How can we find out if the medications that we're taking and the prescriptions that our physicians have given us are part of this situation? What can we do to learn more and to become more proactive? Because it sounds as if now patients have to be their own advocates more than ever. Right. So, um, uh, you know, I have gotten this question so many times since the book came out, and I entirely understand it. Uh, people are extremely concerned. Um, number one, I would say read the book because information is power and people will uh, learn more. Um, uh, but also, your listeners can go on my website, katherineeban.com, and on there I have both a guide to investigating your own drugs and frequently asked questions that will give your listeners information uh, about, you know, how to figure out who's making their drugs, whether the drugs are working, whether they feel they need to change manufacturers, how they can go about doing that. So there is a lot of information that I have put out there um, that is available to patients. Where on your website is that, Catherine? I'm seeing Bottle of Lies, Dangerous Doses, Journalism, News right. and Events. So if you, if you hover over Bottle of Lies, there's a drop-down menu which says More Info, and it's there. Okay. And that is Catherine with a K. Yes. Okay, so once you get into the drop-down menu, there is a guide to investigating your own drugs with a read more option and FAQs for my readers also with a read more option. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, that's right. Where else can they get more information in terms of this issue, perhaps for people who are listening and they're not in the U.S., or if they're traveling abroad and they have concerns, where would you suggest that they gather, go to gather more information? Um, well, I really, you know, to be honest, I would suggest that they read the book and they spend time on my website because I have a lot of links on my website to articles and information that has come out since the book was published. So I would urge them to make that their first stop. Beyond that, what tips, what suggestions would you share with listeners who have concerns about the generic drugs, drugs in their lives or their loved ones' lives? If they're concerned that they could be taking something that is cancer, mm -hmm. what more can they do? You know, the, the first step is to pay attention to this whole issue. So, for example, if you're on a maintenance medication, you should become familiar with who manufactures it. Do you feel it's effective? If it's effective, you want to make sure that your pharmacy keeps you on that manufacturer's generic version. You don't want to get switched. But if you feel it's not effective, if you have side effects, then you do want to switch. Uh, and that's where my guide will come in handy as to how to go about that. Catherine, thank you for joining us from Truro, Massachusetts. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today.
And to our audience, you have been listening to author Catherine Eban, who discussed Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.